from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community, although this man could be considered one, it's really kind of a gray area. Special thanks to my top-tier patrons who now get early access to these podcasts. Thanks, guys. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron, where you could get early access and even the chance to vote on who the next subject will be. I've already got a poll going right now. Like, share, and subscribe. You know, it just might help our little community grow. This week's podcast will be the second part of Yosef Mengele, and if you haven't listened to the first half, I suggest going back and giving it a listen. It talks about his childhood all the way up to him beginning to work at Auschwitz. It goes without saying that this comes with my disclaimer disclaimer because he was the doctor who performed unspeakable experiments on people and children in Auschwitz, a concentration camp run by the Nazis. So without further ado, let's jump right in. So, you know, where we left off, Yosef was taking upon himself, though he was not assigned the task of helping with selections, meaning when prisoners would come out of the train cars or the cattle cars, it would be decided right then and there if they would live or die. Yosef was also one of the SS doctors that was responsible for supervising the administration of Zyklon B, which was the cyanide-based pesticide that was used in the mass gassings in the gas chambers in Birkenau. In 1943, the Romani camp was hit with a gangrenous bacterial disease of the mouth and face called Noma, which is malnutrition-induced, might I add, and Yosef decided he wanted to study it to see if he could come up with a treatment. He enlisted the help of Berthold Epstein, who was a celebrated Jewish pediatrician who had been educated in Prague in the Czech Republic. He was a highly educated man. Berthold, as he watched his family members be killed one by one, was forced to help Yosef perform experiments on people, including purposefully infecting healthy people with Noma in order to study it. It was either that or die. Luckily, he would at least survive the death camp. But back to the patients. The ones infected with Noma were isolated in separate barracks, which were their living quarters, and several sick children were murdered, their heads and organs preserved, so that they could then be sent to the SS Medical Academy, as well as other facilities to be studied. This specific research was still going on when the Romani camp was liquidated and its remaining occupants killed in 1944, 
and this wasn't the only illness to spread through the camps. Another instance is when a typhus epidemic started in the women's camp. Yosef decided to clear one block of 600 Jewish women by simply sending them to die in the gas chambers. That building, now empty, was then thoroughly cleaned and disinfected. Then the prisoners in the next building were bathed, deloused, and given fresh new clothing before being moved into the freshly cleaned building. This process was repeated until all of the barracks had been disinfected, and really, this procedure was used time and time again for later epidemics of scarlet fever and other diseases, and always with the infected prisoners being killed in the gas chambers. And for this, if you can believe it, Yosef received the War Merit Cross, second class with swords, and was promoted in 1944 to first physician of the Birkenau subcamp. Yosef was also awarded a grant that was used to build a pathology laboratory attached to crematorium 2 at Auschwitz. And then, when it was time to perform the various human experiments, Yosef and the other doctors would go shopping, if you will, in the barracks. That was the exact word that was used in the documentary, quote, in vivo, the horrific experiments performed by Yosef Mengele. End quote. The victims would never know exactly what procedure they were being chosen for, only that they knew very well they were nothing more than guinea pigs, and after they had served their purpose, they would be sent to die in the crematoriums. The doctors decided pretty quickly that they would need to sterilize a number of the women and men to try to prevent pregnancies in the camp. One of the techniques was to use x-rays, so intense that, quote, castration with all of its consequences results. In fact, the strong doses of x-rays destroy the internal secretions of the ovaries and the testicles alike. Weaker doses would only suspend sexual potency temporarily. The dosage can be obtained in several ways, and the treatment carried out without the subject being aware of it. Two minutes of exposure for men and three minutes for women should be sufficient. End quote. This quote is actually from a letter written to one of the tops of the Nazis. But again, Yosef was a scientist at heart and decided this would be the perfect opportunity to further his studies of anthropology and hereditary as his mission was to discover how to increase the birth rate of the Aryan master race and what better way than to use the prisoners who were at his mercy. His medical procedures showed no consideration for the victim's health, safety, or physical and emotional suffering. None. Okay? He was rather drawn to or had a particular interest in people who had some genetic uniqueness, if you will, particularly people with heterochromia iridum or people who have two different colored eyes. Oh, and side note, I have central heterochromia, meaning two distinctly different colors in the same eye. So yay me, right? 
He was also interested in dwarfism, people with physical abnormalities, and so on. But his most intense focus seemed to be on identical twins, because twins offer a unique opportunity to have a human to experiment on and another genetic match as the control, if you will. And Yosef would indeed become visibly excited when he would be working during selection and see twins. The other SS officers who helped unload the transports had been given very strict instructions to find twins or other abnormalities in the case of Yosef's absence. And when the parents could hear the German word for twins shouted so loudly, they of course had no idea if this was a good thing or a bad thing to be a twin, and they would have to make a very hard but snap decision as to whether or not they would point out their own children. Can you imagine? And when the twins were discovered, as they almost always were, they were taken away from their parents immediately. No goodbye, nothing. And as the twins were led away to be processed, their parents and family were forced to stay where they were, barely out of the rail car on the ramp, and then went through selection. And though it was exceedingly rare, guys, exceedingly rare, if the twins were very, very young, Yosef would allow the mother to come with her children to ensure their health. So in total, about 3,000 twins were pulled from the masses on the ramp, sets of twins, most of them children. By the end, only about 200 of them survived. Now, after the twins had been ripped away from their parents, they were then taken to the showers. Twins were labeled Mengele's children, so they were treated a bit differently than the other prisoners. Often, the twins were allowed to keep their hair and their own clothes. Then the twins were tattooed and given a number from a special sequence. They would then be taken to the twins' barracks, where they were required to fill out a form asking, you know, mostly things like their age or their height. Children that were too young to fill out the form did get help from the older children or another adult. Once the form was completed, they would be brought before Yosef, who would then begin to assess them. According to ThoughtCo.com, daily life for the twins always began at 6 a.m. They were required to report for roll call in front of their barracks, no matter the weather. After, they were allowed to eat a small breakfast. Then each morning, Mengele would appear for his inspections. But you see, the children weren't scared of him, at least at first, because he would come to see them, smile on his face, you know, his pockets full of candy and chocolate. He would gently and lovingly pat them on their heads and smile and treat them with kindness. It was said that, even at times, he would play with them. Some of the children referred to him as Uncle Mengele, like, oh. They weren't punished for bad behavior, weren't required to do any hard work or hard labor, but this was for good reason, of course. They would, nearly without fail, have blood draws every morning. The twins were then told to undress and lie down next to each other. Every single detail of their anatomy was carefully and intimately examined, studied, 
and measured. Features that were the same between the two were deemed to be hereditary, and those that were different were deemed environmental. These tests would last for several hours, but that doesn't sound so horrible so far, right? Only the frequent blood draws led to mass blood transfusions from one twin to another. One experiment was that Yosef wanted to try to fabricate blue eyes, right? So drops or injections of various chemicals would be put into their little eyes, often causing intense pain and infections along with temporary or even permanent blindness. He would amputate limbs for no reason, or he would purposefully infect one twin with some terrible illness or disease and then transfuse that blood to the other twin. Yosef once murdered 14 sets of twins by injecting their hearts with chloroform. And if one twin unfortunately died from the very things he did to them, he would thoughtlessly kill the other twins so that a comparative post-mortem report could be compiled for research purposes. Delightful. So Jonah Locks, I hope I pronounced her name correctly, and her twin sister were taken as teenagers from the ghetto that they had been forced to live in by cattle car to Auschwitz. Jonah later said that she and her sister weren't immediately recognized as twins, and Jonah was taken toward the gas chamber. Luckily, her sister told Yosef Mengele herself in that moment that they were twins, so Yosef had Jonah retrieved. They were then taken to his laboratory. She would later recall that Yosef would remove organs from his patients with no anesthesia, and again, if that twin died, the other would be immediately killed as well. She saw as people were killed by an injection to the heart and then dissected for examination. As she and her twin were being ushered into the laboratory, she stated, quote, I was looking at a whole wall of human eyes, a wall of blue eyes, brown eyes, green eyes. These eyes were staring at me like a collection of butterflies, and I fell down on the floor, end quote. According to an article written for the BBC, Jonah recalled the first experiment she was subjected to involving being kept in a small wooden cage with her sister and being given incredibly painful injections in her back, though for what outcome she never knew. But she and her twin and many other sets of twins were part of the experiment involving being injected with the bacteria that causes the Noma disease. She recounted that some twins became feverish and some died. She remembered that Yosef would get quite angry if one of the twins went missing, and when she was located, she would stare at him defiantly to prove that he could never break her. Brave girl, actually. And then, of course, we have the more well-known case of 10-year-old twins, Eva and Miriam Moses, who arrived at Auschwitz in May of 1944 with their mother after being stuffed shoulder to shoulder in a cattle car from Transylvania, Romania. Oh, and by the way, in these cattle cars, they mashed so many people in there that people would literally suffocate and die, and their bodies would be held vertical or upright because of just the absolute mass of people in there that they couldn't even fall down. 
So as I said, Eva and Miriam were from Transylvania, Romania. And as they exited the car, an SS guard stopped and asked their mother if they were twins. Their mother responded by asking if that was a good thing. The guard indicated it was. So the mother allowed her little girls to be taken by the SS guard and the girls screamed and begged for their mother the whole way, though they would never see their mother again. Eva said that Yosef would count the children every day to see how many guinea pigs he had to play with for the day. She later said that she was used in two different kinds of experiments. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, they stripped her naked in a room with her twin sister and several other sets of twins up to eight hours a day. During this time, Every possible measurement was taken of her entire body as well as Miriam's to compare and contrast to see any possible differences. Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays they were taken into a room where a concerning amount of blood would be drawn while she also endured several injections. After one particular injection, she became quite sick with a high fever and all four of her limbs began to swell dangerously. Huge red spots began to appear on her body. So, the next day, when Yosef discovered she still had a high fever, he sent her to a hospital which was still nothing more than a barrack filled to the absolute brim with other sick people. The next day, Yosef came with the other doctors to look at her, and he said to her 10-year-old little face, quote, Too bad. She is so young. She only has two weeks to live. End quote. But for the next two weeks, she remembered crawling on the floor as she was unable to walk to try to reach drinkable water on the other side of the barrack, fading in and out of consciousness a few times on the way. After two weeks, her fever broke, but it took another few weeks for her to feel completely back to normal. So then she was taken back to Miriam, who she found sitting quietly, staring off into space. She asked her what was wrong, and Miriam refused to speak about it until many, many years later. Then Miriam recounted that she had been under medical supervision until they began injecting her with various things, and she too had become very, very sick. Now, once the twins were liberated and they went on to get married, Miriam tried desperately to become pregnant, and during her pregnancies, it was discovered that her kidneys never formed beyond the size of her 10-year-old body when she entered Auschwitz. She was plagued with kidney infections and eventually went into complete renal failure. Luckily, Eva was able to give her one of her own. One year later, she developed cancer in her bladder, and though they tried desperately to find Miriam's file from Auschwitz to get some sense of or try to figure out what it was that she was injected with, they never could recover that information. It is known that he oversaw, let's see. <clears throat> it is known that Yosef oversaw forced inseminations for selective breeding and experiments that involved fraternal twins where 
One would be male and the other female, only to transfuse a large amount of blood from one's body to the other in an attempt to, quote, make boys into girls and girls into boys, end quote. Now, some boys with a twin sister were castrated. Yosef took a set of identical twins and decided to see if he could make Siamese twins, right? So he put the twins back to back. He opened their skin, connected blood vessels and organs together, and then sewed the skin together. It was said that the pair screamed day and night until gangrene set in. They had suffered horrifically for three whole days, guys. Yosef also attempted to connect the urinary tract of a seven-year-old little girl to her own colon. I could not find what her outcome was, unfortunately. And again, remember, no anesthesia. Another survivor wrote about his experience with Mengele, quote, I was about five weeks in Auschwitz alone, separated from my family, my parents, two sisters, and two brothers, when Dr. Mengele pulled me out of a queue as we were on the way to the sea logger camp in the gas chamber. I was the only one picked out that day personally by Mengele and his assistant. They took me to his laboratory where I met other children. They were screaming from pain, black and blue bodies covered with blood. I collapsed from horror and terror and fainted. A bucket of cold water was thrown on me to revive me. As soon as I stood up, I was whipped with a leather whip which broke my flesh. Then I was told the whipping was a sample of what I would receive if I did not follow instructions and orders. I was used as a guinea pig for medical experiments. I was never ever given painkillers or anesthetic. Every day I suffered excruciating pain. I was injected with drugs and chemicals. My body most of the time was connected to tubes which inserted some drugs into my body. Many days I was tied up for hours. Some days they made cuts into my body and left the wounds open for them to study. Most of the time there was nothing to eat. Every day my body was numb with pain. There was no more skin left on my body for them to put injections or tubes. One day we woke up and the place was empty. We were left with open infected wounds and no food. We all were half dead with no energy or life left in us. One day, Russian soldiers tried to shake me to see if I was alone or dead. They felt a tiny beat in my heart and quickly picked me up and took me to a hospital. End quote. One more victim's own account with Yosef. Quote, Each day I was submerged in hot water. Whenever I tried to put my head out of the water in order to breathe, I was forced back into the water by Dr. Yosef Mengele's stick. He was enjoying himself. This lasted for 10 minutes. I was immediately afterwards put into cold water and the same procedure was repeated. There were five people, including myself, undergoing the same process. End quote. 
and it would seem that Yosef also sought out pregnant women on whom he would perform experiments before sending them to the gas chambers. Their fetuses did not stand a chance. So based on historical and documentary evidence, a total of 15,754 people were killed in the course of Mengele's experiments at Auschwitz. People who survived the experiments number at least 20,000, and they are often seriously disabled and handicapped for the remainder of their lives. So in January of 1945, two years into his experiments as the Soviets inched ever closer, Yosef and several other Auschwitz doctors were moved to another concentration camp, but never fear, he took with him from Auschwitz two boxes of specimens as well as the records of his experiments while there. The rest of the SS officers began destroying all other camp records. So by the time the Soviets liberated Auschwitz, Yosef had already traveled to Czechoslovakia disguised as a military officer. However, a few weeks later, Yosef and the unit he was with were forced to surrender to the U.S. Army and taken to a prisoner of war camp. A witness later said that Yosef was in a deep depression and even talked of suicide. Poor guy. Although Mengele was initially registered under his own name, he was not identified as being on the major war criminal list due to the disorganization of the Allies regarding the distribution of wanted lists and the fact that he did not have the usual SS blood group tattoo. He was released at the end of July and obtained false papers under the name Fritz Ullmann, documents he later altered to read Fritz Holman. And while Yosef was on the run, his wife and now infant son, Rolf, were living with her parents in a town near Gunsberg, which is where Yosef was raised. She refused to accompany him, and they later divorced. But, you know, being on the run is no walk in the park, and he was forced to flee Germany in April 1949 with the help of former SS members. He traveled and eventually landed in Argentina, South America in July 1949 under the name on forged documents as Helmut Gregor, who said he was an Italian-born mechanic. Another identity he used was Josef Memling and said he was a famous Bavarian painter. He did work as a carpenter in Buenos Aires while living in a boarding house, but he quickly moved into the house of a Nazi sympathizer in a more upscale neighborhood, because I'm sure that's what he felt he deserved. And then in 1951, at 40 years old, he began working as a salesman for guess what company, guys? None other than Carl Mengele and Sons. Yes. He sold farm equipment and even later was able to travel to Paraguay as a regional sales representative. He was also able to get a pretty decent apartment, bought part of an interest in a carpentry business, but the scariest part of it all is that it is believed through reading files released by the Argentine government that he was most likely practicing medicine without a license in Buenos Aires, including performing abortions. 
Then in 1956, for reasons I don't fully understand, Yosef was issued an Argentine foreign residence permit under his actual name. So 11 years after he was forced to flee Auschwitz, he was free to obtain a German passport under his actual name. And believe me, everyone knew who he was by this point, And yet he embarked on a trip to Europe. While there, he met his son, Rolf, who had no idea that that was his father. In fact, his mother had introduced Josef as Uncle Fritz. He went to visit his family in Gunzburg, then returned to Argentina and lived under his real name. And wouldn't you know it, he took his ex-wife's sister on a Swiss skiing holiday before they began living together in Argentina. They were married while on vacation in Uruguay, and they bought a house together in Buenos Aires. So in 1960, his wife and stepson left him to go back to Germany. The reason he got away with this for so long is because during the Nuremberg trials in the mid-40s, the Allied forces believed him to be dead, or so the source material said. I'll leave you to think about that one however you want. But eventually his past caught up with him, and at first Argentina refused to extradite him back to Germany. But by the time they actually agreed, well, it was too late. Yosef had fled to Paraguay and was living on a farm near the border. But he was now living under constant search, right? They'd managed to close in due to letters he'd received under his real name. But he would relocate and not leave any forwarding information. Or someone would figure out who he was, and when they said they were going to turn him in, they would be shamed into silence, you know, being told they would be in trouble for harboring a fugitive. In 1961, there had been a tip that he was in Brazil. So in 1969, the now 58-year-old Yosef became half-owner of a farmhouse, but that wasn't without drama as well. What I found interesting is that his son, Rolf, who had not seen his father since he was a small child, went to visit him in 1977. Rolf was in his very early 30s. Yosef was 66. Rolf was actually interviewed later after this and had some rather interesting things to say about his visit. He said that in the letters they had exchanged, his father said, quote, I do not have the minutest inner desire to justify or even excuse any decisions, actions, or behavior regarding my life. My tolerance has its limits. End quote. Though he did state he was going to be happy to see his son and wanted him to stay for an extended period of time. So Rolf found himself visiting his father, who he said lived in more of a hut than a house. Yosef gave his son his bed, and he slept on the floor. Rolf tried to get his father to open up about what he had done at Auschwitz, but he said Yosef would sort of veer the conversation over into philosophy and pseudoscience subjects. Rolf said his father evaded essential issues and justified his racist views, which he then apparently went into detailed critique of prehistoric evolution. So Rolf asked his father, you know, if you thought that what you were doing was okay, then why not just turn yourself in? 
Yosef replied with, quote, There are no judges, only avengers. End quote. Again, he spoke to his son about his depression, his temper, and his thoughts of suicide, and by the time Rolf left to go back home, he indicated that he had learned absolutely nothing about what his father had done at Auschwitz. He would only say things such as he had had to do his duty, to carry out orders. He insisted, I imagine sarcastically, that he had in fact not invented Auschwitz. He alluded to the fact that, when working in a wartime hospital, that he and the doctors were forced to make instantaneous decisions as to who to save and who to let die. He told his son that the people arrived sick and half-dead already. He claimed that he had done his best to save people by, quote, selecting as many able to work as possible, end quote. He went on to brag that the twins that had been under his care owed their lives to him, in fact, and that he had never personally harmed anyone in his life. Rolf did try to tell his father that his role during World War II was unacceptable, but Yosef wouldn't hear of it. Rolf never saw his father again. It was said that Yosef's health began to decline starting in 1972 when he was 61 years old. In 1976, he suffered a stroke which could have prompted Rolf's visit the next year. He dealt with high blood pressure and developed an ear infection that he had a difficult time treating that left him off balance. It was said that in February 1979, he visited some friends, went swimming in the ocean, and suffered another stroke, which led to him drowning. Sources state that he is buried in Sao Paulo, Brazil, under the name Wolfgang Gerhard, which was the alias that Yosef had been using for the last eight years. Of course, many didn't believe that he had actually died, so forensic anthropologists exhumed the remains. In 1985, a forensic pathologist did an analysis of the dental records as well as skeletal features and concluded that the body was Mengele's beyond a reasonable doubt. But the Israeli police were very much doubting in this investigation, noting some inconsistencies in the testimony of witnesses and the presence of fractures which did not match Yosef's historical records. DNA investigations of the skeletal remains were compared to the DNA of his living relatives, including Rolf, and this provided the additional supporting evidence that the remains were indeed Yosef Mengele's. His remains are stored in the Sao Paulo Institute for Forensic Medicine, where apparently they are used as an educational aid during forensic medicine courses at the University of Sao Paulo's medical school. Now, Yosef wrote about a 500-page autobiography titled, quote, Yosef Mengele, Angel of Death, a Biography of Nazi Evil, end quote, which I'm sure is not the title that he would have chosen, but who knows. A short poem he wrote within the pages reads, quote, Wherever a joyous bird sings, he sings for another. Wherever a tiny star twinkles far away, it twinkles for another. End quote. This 
depraved man became a writer in his later life. This man who became one of the most wanted Nazis on earth. But in his autobiography, he wrote freely and felt no need to be concerned about public opinion. It provides a window for analysis of the criminal mind. His general tone was candid as he assessed his life and his actions. It is written in the third person, as though he is talking about someone else, and he does refer to this person as Andreas, sort of like his alter ego, maybe? He wrote it as a means to pass on what he considered good advice to his son while also justifying his acts in Auschwitz. Rolf said that the book, quote, It is painful to read these writings. There is an uneasy silence about the activities during the war and a ghastly, satisfying vanity about the worthlessness of his childhood and the life after he fled in 1945, end quote. There are no signs of empathy on any of the 500 pages, just to save you some time. He has been said to be the embodiment of pure evil, a doctor who took a pledge to save lives, not end them. So what happened? Nowhere in his background do we see any aberrant behavior pre-Nazis in Auschwitz. If World War II hadn't happened... I think it would be safe to say, if he had any compulsion to do even a portion of the evil things he did, he might have been able to keep it under control. It was said that he became a product of the cause, a man who understood his life to be in the service of a larger vision. He was 100% convinced that the annihilation of the Jews was what was going to lead in the recovery of the world and Germany. It had been his mission to revert Germany back to the ancient German myths in creating an order to purify the Nordic race. His friends said he was extremely anti-Semitic. He had asked to be sent to Auschwitz because he knew the opportunities it would bring him to be able to do his human experiments freely. He presented himself at all times, to be well-groomed and stood in an extremely upright position. He gave the impression that he was a gentle and cultured man, cheerful and appearing to be nice. Yosef saw himself as a biological revolutionary and was utterly devoted to the bold scientific task of remaking his people, Yosef's behavior in Auschwitz seems to reflect some pre-existing psychological tendencies. He sort of felt himself as omnipotent and having total control over others. But it's also a combination of omnipotence and sadism. He was charismatic, described as having star quality. An article written for the New York Times stated he had schizoid tendencies— that he had dead eyes that showed no emotion and yet would avoid making full eye contact. But again, we go back to his utter lack of empathy. But tell me, guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below. I can't really answer them, but I do see them. And you can always DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. I can answer you back there. And as always... 
Thank you so much for listening, guys, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you just keep choosing me. And I thank you so much for it. Have a great day, guys. Anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.